This is the Sensitive Rebel Podcast, and I'm your host, Steve McCready. Join me for conversations with fellow sensitive rebels as we discuss the challenges of making a difference in a world that touches us deeply. If you're ready to turn your sensitivity into a secret weapon, then you're in the right place. Let's do this. Hey, Sensitive Rebels, it's Steve. So my guest today on the Sensitive Rebel podcast is Anne Shabani. Anne is the founder of Summit Press Publishers, and she helps service professionals and entrepreneurs to write and publish expert positioning books that matter, ones that get read from cover to cover. She's a sales and marketing certified coach, Harvard-trained writer, Amazon best-selling author and ghostwriter. She knows which stories get results and which ones should be soaked in gasoline and burned on the lawn. You can learn more about her at AnneShabani.com. So Anne and I have known each other for a number of years, and when I was thinking of people that I wanted to invite to have on the show, she was one of the first names that came to mind, and that's because I know a lot of her story. There's a lot of elements in Anne's story, as you'll hear, that really show some of the challenges that go with being a sensitive human being who is overly focused on those around you, and how that can really cause your life to go in a lot of different directions, not necessarily good ones. But you're also going to hear about some of the ways in which that can actually work for you, and about the importance and power of surrounding yourself with the right people. Another thing that I want to encourage you to listen for is, as Anne talks about her work with her clients, you can really hear the passion that she has for that work and how much she cares about it. And to me, that is really a byproduct of her attunement to feelings and her sensitivity. And this is one of the ways in which she's learned to use it in a really constructive and powerful fashion. And I think it shows up in how she helps her clients produce their books. Now, Here's my conversation with Anne Shibani. Today on the Sensitive Rebel podcast, I am pleased to welcome Anne Shibani. Hey, Anne, how's it going? I am great, Stephen. I'm so excited for the opportunity to be on your platform and talk to your people. What are you rebelling against? I have been rebelling all my life. What have I been? Oh, I love that question. So I started out rebelling against my family. My, my dad was an alcoholic and my mom was wicked codependent. And I had decided pretty early on that I wanted no part of that. So instead of being, I don't know, the caretaker or the, the person that made everything okay, I think I grabbed onto the role of rebel in response to all of that stuff. So I've spent probably all of my life being a rebel without a cause. Like some rebels have really great causes and I just rail against things that I don't like. So what do I rebel against now? I really don't like dishonesty. I really dislike that. I really hate pushy sales stuff. Like we're, we're in the business right now of online marketing and we bring people into our world. You do, my husband does, I do. And there's so much noise out there that doesn't feel truthful. It feels like it's misleading. It feels like it's selling people a bill of goods. And that stuff really bothers me, that the idea of taking advantage of people or mis-selling something. What else do I rebel against? The feeling that all of us have to be a certain way and that we can't be ourselves, that we can't put ourselves out there and, and attract the kind of people that we're meant to serve or to congregate with. That's, if I were going to say, what am I rebelling against? That would be it right now. More stuff will come up. So there's a number of pieces here I want to uh, cruise through if I can remember all of them, but I want to go back. You were talking a little bit about your family and about growing up in a home with alcoholism. And that's one of the things that you and I have in common. And I'm curious for you, what were the messages that you got growing up in that home about feelings and how did that experience affect your relationship with feelings in general and specifically yours? I write about this all the time. Complete and utter disconnect, not having feelings, not identifying feelings, thinking that everybody else's needs come first, that to have needs makes you needy. So I spent a lifetime wanting connection, but not knowing how to get it. What you like seeing how others out there were able to connect 
and not knowing how it was done and, and doing a lot of stupid things in a mad attempt to get connection, but the connection was never genuine. I think that to have connection, you need to have somebody to model it. And if your own parental units can't model that, you need to have, be able to see it. For me, you know, later in life, it's seeing it in mentors. It's seeing even how characters play that out in TV shows or in movies, watching how that is done, seeing it in books, seeing it in characters, because you can't take connection for granted. Like, I, I think we think that most people learn that growing up, how to have healthy connections. But I'll tell you, I work with a lot of people and I am constantly astounded how poor their skill set is with making connections and that connection, that inability to connect properly shows up as codependency. It shows up as aloofness. It shows up as people struggling to communicate and not communicating right or getting angry, getting frustrated really easily. So complete disconnect from feelings, complete disconnect from my own opinions and what I wanted because I, I can sit in a room and I can still do it. I can sit in a room and I know what everybody wants from me. I can spot that even before somebody makes a move or makes any kind of overture. I am like, I know what they want. So to know what everybody else wants and not yourself has been a challenge. Like a lot of my growing, not just as an entrepreneur, but as a human being is identifying, okay, what do I want? What about me? What do I think? What do I want? What's my opinion? So I don't think I really developed much of that until my late thirties. Up until then it was, I was just going with the flow and I thought that was the way to be. I think you've articulated it so well along the way until you got to this point in your 30s, which I want to talk about. When you were going with the flow, as you said, tell me about some of the things that that stick out to you about that time and some of the the challenges that approach brought up for you in your life. So I think going with the flow and thinking that everybody else has better ideas than you, because that's part of what going with the flow is thinking that somebody else has a better plan than you do. So you're just going to go along for the ride. That's how I ended up in Iran. I I ended up getting attached to somebody who was 10 years older than me and he wanted to go back to his home country of Iran. I was in my twenties. He was a grad student. And I thought that was sounded like a great idea. Number one, I got to get away from my family of origin. I got to get away from anything that I thought was boy next door dad growing up in Vernon, Connecticut. Like I wanted no part of that. So I thought he had a great plan. And when you don't know what it is you want or need and you attach to somebody else, when you hook your horse to their wagon and you go with that flow, you end up in places that may well be way in over your head. And I got in really over my head. That's not to say that my former husband was a bad person or tricked me. He was very clear that I probably wasn't cut out for Iran, that we probably weren't cut out for each other because of the cultural differences. He was very honest about that. But I was so insistent that this was going to be the horse I attached my cart to that I ignored that. And when you don't know what it is you need, when you're willing to go with the flow, you don't ask a lot of questions. You're not, not, I don't think a lot of 20 year olds, be they from healthy families or really unhealthy backgrounds are necessarily asking questions, but there's a recklessness. There's a recklessness in who you form relationships with. There's a recklessness in seeing the signs that things aren't going to turn out very well, but still proceeding anyway, because you're on that path and you have to stick with it. So that move ended up being really bad for me. It ended up being really bad for my former husband because I ended up having to bail and get the hell out of Dodge because I really couldn't cope with the cultural differences. And so I came back to the United States when I was maybe 32 and I had two kids at that point. So all that stuff that you're supposed to figure out in your 20s, early 20s, when you come out of college with the very same things that I had to figure out but this time 10 years older with two 
people who were depending on me to do that. I think a lot of people, though, go through their own kind of challenges, right? We have these ideas of here's how it's supposed to go. But uh, what I have found is more often than not, how it's supposed to go is not how it goes. I see that with my clients. My own story has its its elements. Yours very clearly. But I'm really struck by this. So we take you, who is already dismissive of your own feelings and your in your own experiences and overly attuned to your environment. Then we put you in an environment where you put yourself in an environment that is so different culturally from what your previous experience has been. And I imagine you in that space and just the thought of that, it like makes my gut like churn about how distressing and challenging that had to be. And, and then we had a couple kids on top of it. I think one of the challenges was number one, you grow up in an alcoholic family, you already have really shaky boundaries. There are no real healthy boundaries there. And I, I was living in a subculture. My former husband was ethnic Arab and his family had survived the Iran-Iraq war and they were refugees themselves in their own country. And so it meant we had a really small apartment and 10 people would come and stay and they would live in our room and not leave. And there's a whole bunch of rules in that culture, in that subculture, where you're never supposed to ask when somebody's going. And there's no, I need my space. I need my privacy. So I'm a deep introvert and I'm like socially anxious. So you get me in a room where I have a hard time communicating and people are, are there all the time and I have no sense of control. I mean, you, I think ACOAs are wicked control freaks to begin with. We want to control all of the chess pieces to keep ourselves safe. Like when I can't manage the chess pieces, when there's no saying no to this stuff and I have to take that in and accept it because I'm married to somebody who's got the lion's share of rights in that nation under Islamic law. If I don't like it, I can leave, but my kids stay with their dad because that's just the way child custody works. You know, the stakes got higher. When you have kids, stakes go way up because you don't have custody of your kids. It's not unlike if an American man is married to an American woman who's crazy for a lack of a better expression he hangs in there for the sake of his kids because it would be really hard to get custody of the kids and you you need to, to stay in that to serve as a buffer for your kids but culturally it was a very different culture there's no there was no boundaries there was no space it wasn't part of that subculture to begin with it is you know kind of like villager mentality as opposed to citified mentality and it, it was complete and utter lack of control, which was bad, bad news for me, for my nervous system. Didn't like that at all. What was the tipping point that got you to decide, I've got to get out of here? So this, this is kind of a, a brilliant dramatization of what being detached looks like or feels like when you don't know how you feel, when you don't know how things have built up, you, you like generally, and I, I use you, but I'm talking about myself and people I think like us who are detached from feelings. I, I was supposed to go home with my kids for a couple of months and I was going to hang around until Halloween so my kids could do trick-or-treating. And I was going through these series of migraine headaches. Could not, for the life of me, quit with a migraine headaches. They kept coming after me, one after the other. And one day I was having a conversation with my girlfriends. I was telling them some stories about, like, my mother-in-law sleeping at the foot of my bed and telling me, oh, you should, you know, go do it so you can have more kids and this time go make a boy. And I thought these stories were hysterical. And my friends are looking at me and they're like, wow, this is some crazy shit. Do you even hear yourself? And so seeing the reaction of other people, something I couldn't feel, but they mirrored for me 
And then putting it together with the fact that I had all of these migraine headaches one after the other, it's like, oh, this is in fact untenable. Because I thought, hey, a couple of months, I'm going to take a break. I'll be okay. I'll go back. And the combination of seeing it, getting that feedback like, this is not right. This is not normal. This is not something that you're meant to do. And then my body not lying to me. That was really when I decided not to go back, which precipitated, as you can imagine, a lot of unhappiness with everybody involved. It always strikes me as kind of ironic, though not surprising, that we have folks such as, as yourself who are, on, are basically disconnected from your feelings because of as a survival technique. And that creates its own cycle where it causes you to end up in worse and worse situations. But it also illustrates a very real strength there to get through that. But it ends up being a strength that is, I'll say, maybe misapplied, right? Because it's not like this is one of those cases where you want to persist. And that's something I find is we can sometimes get caught up in. We're just, it's not that we can't be persistent. It's that we just do it in the wrong places. And it sounds like that's kind of where you ended up here. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I talk to a lot of people and I know you do, you, you do too. And you ask yourself the same question over the years is when is it time to quit? When is it time to quit a relationship? When is it time to quit a business venture? That's not yielding results when it, and That's always a question. I do look at that tenacity of hanging on to a relationship way longer than you need to be hanging on to the relationship. And I think, you know, the the beginning answer to the questions of, you know, am I hanging on to something I shouldn't hang on to, be it a business venture or an idea or a relationship is Why are you hanging in there? If it's fear of the unknown, if it's fear of putting it down and not, you know, knowing who you are separate and apart from that, then you got an issue. Then you need some help sorting that out. Because when you're hanging on out of the fear of the unknown, like for me, I couldn't let go of a very unhealthy relationship because if I let go of that relationship, I no longer had an identity. And like my ego would just freak out at the idea of letting something go because I'd rather cling to something bad and have that identity, have that, oh, this is what I do. This is what I am. Then be on my own and go, okay, now what? That fear stuff is, that's the wrong motivator, I think. Absolutely. I completely agree. I mean, I think you absolutely nailed it is that when we are letting fear drive the majority of the time, I think it does not take us someplace good and it can cause us to get very, very, very stuck in something that's, that's not serving us. So I think that that's a very, very important point in looking at why we're maybe looking at shifting gears or not shifting gears. So you find yourself back in America two young ones going through the the challenges of of a divorce and a split with some associated drama. And you said having lost your identity in a sense from this. So tell me about where you went from there. That that seems like such a a challenging space to be. And I can imagine must have felt very lost at that point. Yeah. And thankfully I could form a codependent relationship with my mother. That was awesome. You don't want to do that. So I, I moved back in with my mom and I, I ended up staying with her for seven years because I felt like I wasn't going to be able to, to raise or support my kids on my own, which really wasn't true. But once a codependent, you really want to like keep that dynamic going. That was awesome. But I think, you know, finding out who I was or developing an identity, developing a sense of self two major things. Number one is I began running and I began running because I was all neurotic about my body weight. I put on weight and I thought if I ran, I'd be pretty and thin and that would be okay. But what running did for me instead was it allowed me some headspace. It allowed me time out where I was actually 
not cramming myself with busy thoughts and squirrely thoughts. It was a moving meditation for me, which is, is something I had never really allowed myself. So I met myself out there. And I'd also form friends who thought, hey, you know, let's run a race. We, you know, would go run a road race on the weekend for fun. So I began to form social relationships with people around an activity. Like I began to make friends. And then we ran a marathon together, this group and I. And running that marathon was pretty life-altering because... I considered myself somebody who would get, you throw an obstacle in my path and I would give up. I really thought of myself as having very little resilience and and a very low tolerance to frustration. I still see that I have a low tolerance to frustration. I'll, I'll run into that. But it was a matter of over a course of six months training for this. It was an exercise in figuring out how to get my kid coverage, how to push through discomfort, how to build on this thing and see real progression in a relatively short period of time. The ability to see progression in a short period of time was like, ooh, look, I'm improving. I can see it. And when I crossed the finish line, it was so uncomfortable for me. I'm like, wow, I never thought I was capable of that most people don't want to bother with. And I did it. So it was like, what, you're going to tell me I can't do something? Did you just see what I did? So the second part of it was going back to school for writing. I had gone on a blind date with somebody who was lovely, a self-professed narcissist. And he'd asked me what I'd always wanted to do. And I said, you know, I thought I would write, particularly I want to write stories about what had happened to me through me in Iran. And I started writing and writing out those stories, writing about, look what happened to me. Oh my God, all these horrible things that happened to me became the ability to see, look, what happened to me? Like, how did this happen? How did I get here? What was my role in it? And it kind of released me from victimhood. And I, I started to see how, of course, this went down this way. I was just prime candidate for this kind of thing. It's so predictable that I would have ended up there and this is how it would have gone down. So there was an understanding of who I was as a human being and what drove me and what drove my former husband and how he wasn't the bad guy. He was just the wrong guy. And the whole dynamic that he didn't want, but I made sure it happened. And so it was learning to tell the truth it was learning to take personal responsibility. It was learning to forgive other people and myself. And it produced coming out the other side of that, a very different person. Not to say that I don't still see my codependent tendencies. It's still something I have to watch out for all the time and manage. But it's not the same chick who went to Iran and had a couple babies. Both of these experiences, the marathon and the writing, it really strike me as chances both for growth as as you've articulated, but also chances to really encounter some pretty significant discomfort. And you you know describe yourself as someone who's not resilient. Well, uh, training for a marathon isn't exactly easy. <laughs> so, so where did you find the resilience? to do that? What did you do when I, cause I got to imagine there's points at which you're like, why am I doing this? This is ridiculous. Or, or, you know, some other similar thoughts. Well, I think it's going back to the boot camp of the alcoholic childhood, right? Like there's good stuff that comes out of that boot camp. And one of that boot camp, one of that, the things that comes out of there is that recklessness. Yeah, that sounds good. I'll try that. So, you know, night when friends are saying, Hey, do you want to do this? And there's not a lot of thought. There's that tendency to just take action and to jump in and say, that sounds like a good idea. So had I spent a lot of time thinking about it, I probably wouldn't have done it. It was good peer pressure. Like you want to surround yourself with the right kind of peers because you got to know that you're subject to peer pressure. That's our tendency to be very affected by what other people want to do. Like, yeah, that sounds good. I think I'll do that. So here's a case where your what at the time was still 
a little bit of a, of a weakness in a sense of the reactivity or the potential weakness, when you put yourself in the right environment, it became effectively a strength because you were reacting to people who were healthy and who were supportive and who were going to help you get in a good direction. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I also think one of the, the things that made it less painful, oh my God, I'm focusing it so hard, but physically it's really challenging, is it was really good for me spiritually in those running groups where there were opportunities to be with two or three people who were out there running and they're suffering as well. And we're all entertaining each other and talking. And it was almost like a fishbowl where you're swimming around each other and you get to know people pretty well. And it was a really good opportunity to form connections. Like I don't think we're good at forming connections naturally, like I said in the beginning, So it was a Petri dish for really healthy, strong connections. And that was a payoff for me. That was a big payoff. So seeing that progression, forming those relationships, I still stay in touch with my running buddies. They're like, they're completely different people now. And yet we have that in common. We did that together in common. So we've always got each other's sixes because of those experiences. It was a very strong bond that got formed. So that bond made the other stuff worthwhile in my mind. Right. Because there was there were some very real um, rewards that you were getting from this, the sense of connection, which is certainly something that shared experience can facilitate. Now, sometimes that can be a not so healthy connection as in a codependent family relationship, but it also can be something like this, where you're pursuing this goal, it's healthy, it's serving you spiritually. And so that supports you know connection, but in a very, very good way. So this was just about taking the you who you had been and putting you in a different environment where it worked in your favor to help move you in a better direction, it sounds like, in a lot of ways. Yes. You were talking about the the training experience and the going out on these runs and it, having a, a spiritual you know, aspect to it being very meditative. So tell me a little bit more about that and, and how that started to affect and, and shape you. I'm curious to hear about that because I think that's a space a lot of people are afraid of. They're afraid of being alone with their thoughts and being in the quiet. And we live in a world that makes it so easy to not have quiet. So I think it'd be helpful for us to understand how that was actually beneficial to you because it's clear that it was. If you put me in the house, like I, I went away to a writer's retreat for eight weeks and I stayed in a house by my myself and it was a real adjustment. And I had the distraction of writing. I had the distraction of going out for runs and whatnot. But that feeling like I was on my own and there was nothing to bounce off of was pretty disconcerting. So I'm not naturally drawn to that. Like the idea of going, I think I'll go to a 10-day Vipassana meditation. I'd rather do a triathlon, quite frankly, than do a 10-day Vipassana meditation that didn't require me to sit for 10 days with myself. But I think the activity, that moving meditation, that idea that I was doing something, that I was accomplishing something, it almost fooled me into being by myself. Like I have to fool myself into being by myself so I could accomplish. Look what I'm accomplishing because I'm an accomplishment hoe if ever there was one. I I get a lot of security from that sort of thing. And in the meantime, that stuff crept in. I had to trick myself into it. And so for me, having a little headspace, being out there, hearing the sound of my breath, hearing you know my footfall, knowing I was okay, knowing that I could dial it back a little bit if, I, if it got to be too much, feeling like I had some control, feeling like I could begin to push some limits and my head wouldn't flip out like, oh my God, catastrophe, catastrophe you know, like, oh, I can dial it back and it's not a catastrophe. It is that ability to turn the dial and maybe to self-regulate. I don't think I'm a particularly good self-regulator. 
So there it's almost like a physical manifestation of what self-regulation looks like. And I liked that. It didn't scare me. Nothing bad happened. So it was like intro 101 to self-regulation. It sounds like you effectively found a way to, I'll say, almost hack yourself in doing that. And that's not unusual. Most people are not really super comfy with the idea of, I'm just going to like, you know, sit here with my, my thoughts in, in the quiet. And that, yeah, activity can make a huge difference in, in giving us exactly that sort of thing. I think it's brilliant here that this is, this is the thing that's sticking out to me and is how that provided this opportunity. And that's, that's the thing is these answers sometimes happen in these either indirect or roundabout ways or things that feel like a compensation. But at the end of the day, what I'm hearing is it worked. And that's what matters. You know, it worked. And so you train for this marathon, you do it. You're like, wow, check this out. I did this very significant accomplishment for sure. And then you go and and tackle this writing work and writing about yourself and your experience. Tell me some more about that and about the the emotional experience for you of doing that, because I would guess that it probably brought up a lot of emotions on on kind of all sides of the spectrum there. Yeah, it did. I was just I was just talking to somebody. I'm I'm doing a, a book doctoring project for it was a, a British woman who's kind of upper crust British woman. She's a lovely woman. And she started crying and she said, oh, you know, she was very apologetic about her tears. You know, we were talking about her work. She wasn't talking about some horrible thing that had happened to her, but she was talking about something that really mattered to her. And and I was just explaining, well, it's good news for me because I have stock in Kleenex and I have stock in L'Oreal Cosmetics that, that come crying off of you. One of the things that I that you you see among writers in particular, and these are people who have decided I'm going to get clear on what this is I do, what this is I've experienced, what it is that I make of the world or the subject. When you're willing to put that time and energy into exploring it and working the words on the page and, and making sense of it, it's really emotional. It's looking at an idea and it's looking at a story from a number of angles. And the good news is like, you're putting it on the page and making it look nice. But the bad news is, oh, that's what that looks like. And people start asking questions like, well, why would you do something insane like that? And there's a good reason. It's not always the thing that you think of up front, but you got to dig back. Like, well, why would I do that? Well, that is ridiculous. What did I think or what did I feel when that happened? And it, it is a process, you know, when I'd first get some of these stories done on the, on the page, I would sit and cry. I would just, it would be so sad or so frustrating or so I'd be so angry. The, the first emotions when you tell stories like this is anger and rage and sadness and guilt and all of that stuff. And then when you get that on the page, then it beca- it's you free yourself of that. You really do free yourself given enough time to work it and think about it. And I also got very good at sharing it in workshops or in writers groups. And I would sit and read it and cry a little bit. And people would sit back pretty impassively and tell me, well, you know, your use of adjectives was just very overwrought. So it's like nobody's paying attention to all that stuff you think makes you look filthy and horrible, like a horrible human being. So there's this connection that your story isn't really all that unique. The details are pretty unique, but the stuff that people write about is pretty universal. The feelings that you talk about or write about are pretty universal. So there comes a point where you accept it. At least I did. I got I wrote long enough where I accepted that stuff about myself. If you want to integrate the shadow, holy crap, there's no better way to integrate your shadow than to go, by the way, this is all the disgusting stuff you don't know about me. And then people yawn. They're like, yeah, that's really interesting. Why did you do that? They're totally missing what you did. They want to know the drivers behind it. And it's all passe. It's pretty human. Why we all do this stupid stuff we do. So you want self-acceptance, you write about your life. 
and you discover that it's a lot more normal than you always have feared it was. Yes. Yeah. So it sounds like two things really came from this. One, in the writing, a connection with the emotions. So it's almost like this was a way for you to feel a lot of these feelings that maybe you hadn't felt or had the the kind of connection to. But then also a greater um, piece of self-acceptance and, and awareness that, oh, um, it's nothing wrong with me. I'm pretty much just a human here. And I've had my human story, which as you said, the details are unique, but the themes are not. Exactly. I can see how between the marathon and that, that writing experience, that would be a very transformative combination of things. And then how did all of this lead to the point where you decided that you wanted to do something in the context of writing and helping people with their writing on a professional basis. Well, Steve, this would be called another exercise in random. I think I'll say yes, as opposed to let me plan this out because there's not a lot of planning going on in some people's heads. So I came out of grad school and I found that I wasn't writing anymore because I didn't have deadlines. So I thought, I know, I need to find writer's friends. And I hooked up with a couple of writers and we had a formed our own writer's group. And one of the, the women in the writer's group wanted us to come and speak at her adjunct university class about forming a writer's group. And we all liked it so much. We got this brain child. One of, one of the, my partners said, hey, let's start a writing workshop. Let's just start a writing workshop and see who shows up. And we slapped up some advertisements in the local restaurants. And pretty soon we had a writing workshop class and it became a writing workshop. Just kind of grew. We were good at what we did. We liked it and we grew and we had a following. So we were content to make pin money doing this, teaching people how to write novels and short stories and everybody reading and improving writing craft and we all like that and when Walt uh, my husband was a Tony Robbins coach he and I were at a dinner with a bunch of other Tony Robbins coaches and one of the other coaches said hey we got all these people who have I want to write a book on my bucket list could you teach them if we got a whole bunch of people together would you teach people how to write books like, yeah I can do that why not so they got a whole bunch of people together, sent them over to me, like no marketing. They came seeking me out and I built it while I fly. And I do think that this is one of the great things about growing up in an alcoholic family is, is like, you don't know what to do. So you figure it out on your own. We're very good at going, okay, I'll figure this out on my own. Cause I can't ask anybody. So I ended up teaching this online course. And when you teach an online course, what will often happen is people will say, hey, do you do this one-on-one? And I began teaching people how to write a book. And most of the people were interested in doing this for their business or telling stories for coaching, their coaching or their speaking career. And then that grew. All of a sudden, people just started coming. So I just respond to people asking me, will you do this? And I say yes, and I figure it out, and it becomes a thing, and I get really good at it. And then suddenly I have a publishing company. So it started with a friend going, hey, wouldn't it be fun? So it's having the right friends, having people who say, hey, wouldn't it be fun to start a writing workshop as opposed to, hey, wouldn't it be fun to start selling heroin on the street? Well, th- this definitely lends credence to that whole argument about how who you surround yourself with is important. But um, but that is, and I, I think, is a really important thing. And I think that's true for anybody, right? More so for those of us who are sensitive, for sure. But for anybody, because who you surround yourself with affects the opportunities you get, the ideas that are introduced to you, the conversations that happen. And it sounds like that's been part of this journey for you is as you have put yourself around more and more of, I'll say, the right people or people who, you know, were not selling heroin, um, but you, you have had these ideas come up or these opportunities or these discussions that have led to you being able to do things that were more and more, one, impactful, but two, 
sound like they, they resonate better with, with you and who you are. Yeah. And I'll tell you, you know, it's not, it's saying yes. And to opportunities. And each time I, you know, took on one of these challenges, like somebody said, will you do it? It's important to note that it's not without a lot of insecurity. One of the challenges that people, entrepreneurs and when coaches and speakers and all the, there's a common theme that we're all afraid that we're going to be found out imposters. Right. And I don't like not being good at stuff. I don't like doing new things. I don't like putting myself in new situations that I don't know how to control and manage. You know, I'm, I'm very aware of how I'm perceived. I don't want to fail people. I don't want to look like a fool. So each time I'm doing it, it's always helped when I have partners who can kind of spread the shame. You know, it's like something goes wrong, it's them. But you know, each time I did this, there's, there, there's, it's a lot of managing fear. It's a lot of managing, you know, am I going to be found out? It's a lot of managing that stuff. When people are asking you for stuff, it's great. The market presents itself to you. But each time you try something you haven't done before and put yourself out there and do some sort of venture in business or even in a relationship, that what I'm saying is this, what goes with this is a lot of insecurity and you've got to manage that. And how, what are some of the ways in which you do that? Cause you're absolutely right. People always want like, does the fear go away? It's like, no, we just get better at, at finding ways to stand up to it. But how, what are some of the things you found most effective for you in, in standing up to that fear and not letting it drive as we talked about earlier? So one of the things it really helps to be reckless and just have that tension to, I'm just going to do it and figure it out as I go along. It's a skill and it also is, it's the double-edged sword. But I, you know, I was reading a book, Shonda Rhimes, The Year of Yes. It came out in, I don't know, 200, 2020, 2015. And she's another deep introvert. She's a screenwriter. She writes television shows. And, and she was writing about being stuck in a rut and liking to be quiet in her room on her keyboard, which is, I totally relate to that. Because if I didn't have to be out in the world, I'd be quiet in my quiet little cottage writing all the time. And she was, she forced herself to start saying yes to opportunities, to saying yes to being in public, to be on video, to be on interviews. She did it because she knew that the result would be to grow and to start enjoying herself and to loosen up. So I think the reason I mentioned that book is it's nothing more than a decision. You're just going to do it and you're not going to like it that much in the beginning. And you're going to get through the discomfort. And you like I make decisions all the time. Like I'm going to stop looking like a sphinx on this call. I'm going to say something, even though everyone's going to realize I don't know what, I don't know as much as they do. I don't like to be the dumbest person in a room. I like to be the smartest person in a room, but I put myself in situations with, you know, like I'm in a mastermind group with a bunch of people who have seven figure businesses and they, you know, what I do in a year, they do in a month or two. And I force myself to talk. I force myself to give feedback or say things <clears throat> because everything in me wants to hide. So I think sometimes you have to force yourself. It's simple. How do you convince that part of your brain that the, the amygdala in there, that's just convinced that doing that is going to cause you to die, that you're actually not going to die? Testing it, testing it in small ways, finding those small opportunities. I was listening to somebody talk about these funnels and all these really clever business ideas and there was one opportunity to comment on something that I knew about after like an hour or two hours. And it's like, there's an opportunity where I can just put my toe in. So it's finding like not diving off the cliffs of Acapulco, but sticking your toe in a water and then seeing that the sharks actually are not going to rip it off. It's doing it in small ways that allow you to do it in bigger ways. Totally. I think that's huge. That that experimentation and starting small piece is such a useful way of approaching it. I think you're totally right because then you get more familiar with it and comfortable with it and you can just keep stretching yourself. So tell me a little bit more about the work that you do now and 
in that, I, I'd love to hear some about both for you and your clients, the role that, that feelings plays both good and bad in that work. Oh, where do we start? The role that feelings play. So I'll take a, a book project often from concept all the way through publication. So when I'm talking to somebody about their concept, there's always a lot of excitement. There's all these great ideas. And then they have to start making choices. Then we start evaluating which the choices are going to get them what they want. The minute they have to choose and narrow it down is when emotions begin to kick in. It's like, what if I choose wrong? What if it's the other idea? So it's learning to be learning to be comfortable with, this is a good idea. Maybe it's not the best idea, but maybe it's just like a good idea and then running it to, to ground. And then, you know, when we choose a topic and, and I work with people in a, in a whole bunch of ways, sometimes it's as a coach and you talk through concepts and then they write something and they, they send it back to me and I edit and, and we talk through, this is what I, I think this is about. This is what we need a little more of. We start to grow this thing. And sometimes people come with a full-blown manuscript and I fix it, figure out what they were after, and then I fix it. And sometimes it's ghostwriting, which is exploring the topic, interviewing them, and then taking this mud and turning it into something. So regardless of how I, I get this book, where what happens is the emotions come up because nine times out of 10, people are sharing really personal stories. They recognize that their experiences, their stories are part and parcel to how they serve their clients, how they serve the world. And when you start sharing your stories, the good and the bad, it's really exposing. It's really personal. It's really emotional. And people get pretty good at crying it out and then going, of course, like, like what happened with me. It's like I couldn't have gone down any other way. So there's the whole roller coaster of I suck. Why would anyone listen to me? What does my story have to do with any? Is this gratuitous? Do I sound whiny? Do I sound like I hate the world? All the stuff that comes with, with sharing personal story and inserting it in your concepts and whatnot. But where you really get to know a person and where humanity really crops up is when it is ready to be published and you are about to launch proof positive of who you are and your thoughts and feelings out into the world in black and white. You are about to be found out for everything that you know and every way you lack. That's when it's all about the deep psychoanalysis and you're about to be exposed and what does that feel like and how do we make that better for you and how do we do it in a little in a way that's comfortable and all of that because exposing yourself for who you are and what you think is about the best exercise there is in owning yourself and allowing people to know you and decide if they want to work with you it's not for the faint of heart. I can easily see how your own story and experience would give you a particular ability to to work with your clients because you get it because you've been there and you have that credibility. And you know, yeah, I can see all the the turmoil in working up to that point and then the tremendous fear on like, okay, here we go. And it's about to go out into the world. What happens after that? for them once they've it's out there and they're kind of through the initial you know the exposure piece then what two things happen one people start reaching out to them and saying i couldn't put your book down i've read about stuff like this before but until you until i read your book i didn't understand all of a sudden they see their ability to have very real impact on people they've never met. And that's some heady stuff. It's like, what are you talking? You talking to me? That identity shift and that, oh my God, there are people I'm actually doing it. And your people are hiring them. Like I read your book. It's amazing. Do could you work with me? Can you help me get this result? Like that side feels amazing. 
And the other thing that happens is that weirdos come out of the woodwork and say shit and they will leave a horrible review or they will criticize or they will say, you said this. And suddenly the one horrible comment out of 30 will stick out. And you have to learn to get okay with that. You have to learn that you're not going to please everybody. You have to learn how to manage criticism. You could have the best book in the world and someone's going to criticize you. So you will get criticism. If you have a book out in the world, it will come, criticism. And, and you learn how to take it. One of my clients just wrote a book and was talking about a really challenging relationship with a mother. While she was writing the book, we're like, I was saying, you know, let's not label or diagnose your mother. Let's talk about the, you know, the experiences you felt, what an interaction made you think. We're not going to label something because that comes off as very rageful, unprocessed emotion. And she was very worried about the book coming out and her mother reading it. So we had a lot of conversations about what might happen if your mother reads this. And she, she's like, I'm going to get disinherited. She's going to like come after me. My brother's going to sue me. And her mother read the book and the author forwarded me the message and said, this is what my mother said. And it was one of the most gracious things I'd ever read in my life. And the mother was like, I hope you work through some of your demons. And I just want you to know your dad and I always loved you and, and did our best by you. And we're so proud of you and your effort. And I was like, this wonderful opportunity, like what she thought was going to happen didn't happen. And it was this opening to something else. I read it as a stranger. I don't have the capacity to read between the lines the way she would, because who knows, you know, how she read it. And, and she may well be right how she read it. But it's mixed. It's a mixed smorgasbord. You get great business and you get the ability to learn how to deal with criticism and you, you're pretty clear on what it is you think and feel and you process that. So when people poke at it, you can actually speak to it because you've already done the work of processing it. Pretty powerful stuff. I think so. Um, it nuts. It definitely sounds like it. So for you, What's it like to get to be a part of these journeys, um, you know, in the way that you, as you support and help these people in the different ways that you do through creating and putting these, these works out into the world, getting to, to be a part of that because you're very clearly aware of how emotionally intense that experience is for them. What's it like for you? Actually, you know, one of the things that somebody once asked me years ago is, what do you want more than anything? And for me, it was connection because I was never good at connecting to myself. I was never good at connecting with other people. So these relationships are beyond the creative, beyond I'm trained to do this, beyond I love stories, I love writing. I have the opportunity to get to know people really well and to know how they process and how they think and that part feeds me. I, I really like that. The other thing is, I remember when I was in writing school, I took an editing class because everybody wanted to know, like, when you send your manuscript to a publishing house, what, what are they looking for? What does that look like? And the person who wrote, who was leading the class said, anybody who ends up an editor is essentially a failed writer who is afraid of writing. So for years, I didn't want to do anything like this because I thought it meant I was a failed writer. But what I discovered is this whole process makes me such a good writer. It makes me so much more in tune to people. It gives me an opportunity to really understand this much larger world, this much bigger humanity. I get to see people. I get to see inside people's heads. And then I get to see something beautiful that comes of it. There's nothing more satisfying than having this amazing book out in the world and seeing how it ripples across, like how it affects people. Yeah, it's great for business, but this stuff changes how people see the world. So I think 
Like, I don't understand anybody who wants to be in politics. I don't understand anybody who doesn't want to write because if you write, you get to change the world without having to go on these tours where you're, you have to like debate other people. I just think it's a great way to impact without getting sliced and diced like a politician. I think you have almost as much power. You have the capacity to have more power than a politician with your writing. I think it is so fabulous and that you have found this way of one getting connection, right? And being able to use your experience to support your clients in doing this important work of theirs. Because I think you're right. I, I, books absolutely can change and transform the world. They can, they do. They change the lives of the people who write them, sometimes of the people who read them. There are certainly books that have absolutely changed my life. And um, so it's really it's so cool how you've been able to tie these things together into the work that you do, where you're both helping yourself and at the same time serving your clients. And I find that that's something that ends up being true for a number of us along the way as we stumble around on the path of life, if we if we do it long enough and and persistent enough. But um, this is it's really fabulous. I can hear in your words and and you know in your tone how much this work really touches you when you're able to to help them, your clients get their stories out there. Yeah, it does. That's really cool. One of the things I like to do in these interviews, and so if you're up for it, we can we can do this for a few minutes here, is I like to put my coaching hat on a little bit and talk with my guests about something that they're wrestling with or challenged by right now. So you up for up for a little fun there? Let's play a game, man. Let's play a game. All right. So yeah, so tell me what what would you say is is a current challenge or struggle that you're having a hard time with or wrestling with in your professional life? So let's go back to my seven figure business mastermind where I put my toe in the water. How do I stop worrying that I don't know as much as these people do? And trying to stay nice and quiet and only give feedback, but never ask questions. I don't ask questions, which could help me because I don't want to reveal how much of a beginner relative to them I am. How do I learn to ask questions so I get the benefit of their wisdom? That's, a great, I think, a great question and a, a great goal is the only value you have to offer to that group the knowledge that you have? Well, it's my delightful personality as well. <laughs> well, that's certainly true, but I still think you're limiting yourself. What else? So let me ask you in this way to get work back around to it. What is the value that you offer your clients beyond your knowledge and expertise as it relates to writing? We know that, but beyond that, there's more there. What is it? So it's being a person. It's sharing the universe, the universal fears and hopes, sharing the same insecurities and the same desires. It's the multitude of years, in my case, 50, almost 58 years of being on this planet and seeing different things and making different connections and being able to bring that to the table again. That's wisdom wisdom and insight. It's receptivity. It's the desire to learn. Yeah, that's my short list. That's what immediately comes to mind. What would you say is different or unique about you that helps you to serve your clients better and differently than how someone else who does similar work would? I think that I'm not highly judgmental. Not to say that I don't immediately judge and go, yeah, I wouldn't do that. Humans judge and they and we evaluate. But I'm not inclined to make it stick with people because I think I live by the adage people who live in glass houses really shouldn't throw stones. It's like learning to accept myself has allowed me to be far more accepting of other people and their flaws and what they perceive to be their flaws. It's like, to me, it's like, what? That's not a big deal. So I think it's compassion. I think it is a high level of acceptance, 
yeah, I, I think that's it. Now, let's go back to our, our seven-figure uh, mastermind folks here. What are the assumptions that you have about them or the stories that you tell yourself about them and who, the, who they are, what they know, and all that? It's kind of like that lion who gets the mouse to take the thorn out. I think that they know so much about business, that they know so much about marketing, that they know so much about team building, that they know so much about all of the stuff that I am just learning. That's that a newbie wouldn't have much to offer them by way. What am I going to say here? Let me tell you how I run my funnel and get 70 people through this in two minutes. I don't have that. I don't have the answer to the problems that they currently have in their business. You don't have the answer to the problems that they're talking about having in their business, but that's often not really the problem, right? Right. Because business problems are often personal problems in disguise. Personal problems in disguise. But yeah, see, so here's here's the thing. And I think you're getting caught in this thing of seeing like, well, these guys know so much and they've done these bigger things than me. So what do I have to offer? But they're still humans, right? They still have human fears, human anxieties, human uncertainties. And that means that they still have some of the same struggles as your clients. And I suspect very much that there are some things that you give to your clients and that you do, again, uniquely and probably differently from others in the mastermind that have value. And so while, yes, you may not be the like funnel expert or whatever, (laughs) that doesn't mean you don't have something useful to offer in your perspective, but also in getting back to what you were saying and about asking questions and learning to ask, you know, more questions, which is like anything, right? It's a practice and learning to do that is something that I think we can all uh, work on. One of my favorite resources that really helped transform my relationship with questions, even though it's very, very simple in the questions in there is um, Michael Bungay-Stanier's book, The Coaching Habit, which I have recommended to so many people because it is just these, some very simple and basic questions that are super powerful. And so that might be another thing too, if you want to learn how to ask better questions. Yeah. I want to ask better questions. Yeah. And I, and I want to, you know, I want to get good at asking questions that reveal what I don't currently know. What is the value for them in having an opportunity to, or a request to explain what they do and how they do it and all of that? When you get to share your wisdom and your information, you get to be somebody's mentor. You get to be, you get to give that to them and that feels good. For sure. As well as getting a chance to really check, like, do I understand this as deeply as I think I do? Are there areas where I might be lacking? And so I think the challenge here, and for you is shifting your perspective on what you bring to the group because you obviously have things to bring they just aren't the things that you're thinking you're supposed to bring for whatever reason. But, you know, we all have those assumptions or things. Yeah, we do, don't we? What is that without a human being? I know. <laughs> Damn humans with our human brains. <laughs> Damn humans. That's, um, that's really helpful. Even that question of, you know, what do you get? What does that allow for them? You asking the question and having them answer, what does that allow for them? And I think when you, when you make it useful for another person or you see a benefit to another person, it makes it easier to accept it. And so what's next for you? Any fun projects or other things coming up as we move through 2021 here? The pandemic, of course, is always putting a question mark on stuff, but Flirting with the idea of climbing a mountain in Pakistan at the end of June. So we'll see about that. Um, so there's usually an adventure on the docket running the R to R to R in the, in the Grand Canyon. We did that maybe two years ago or a year and a half ago and came close to finishing it. Like we're going to go back and straighten that pig's tail some really cool projects on the board, people's book projects and publishing projects. That's always fun, like really fun stuff. I want to get rid of the rat in our attic. Can I include that? Sure. 
as a project. <laughs> that's it. I think that's pretty much it. It. Oh, we're going to go climb this mountain in Pakistan. That's all. No big deal. It's all a matter of perspective, I guess, right? <laughs> so, Anne, if people want to connect with you or learn more about you, where is uh, the best place for them to do so? So you can go to my website, which is annshabani.com. And I know you'll probably send a link. If you thought about writing a book and can think of all the things that get in your way of writing a book, I've actually compiled a list of all the things that you figure will get in the way of writing a book that don't have to get in the way of your book. So there is called Four Obstacles Between You and a Finished Book. And it's a lot of the stuff that we talked about, all the the fears that we have about being exposed or not knowing enough or whatnot. And you can always reach me at Anne at AnneShibani.com too, if you've got questions. Happy to talk it through. I will definitely have links and everything in the show notes for all of that. And so good to be able to catch up with you. Thanks so much for for taking the time to, to come on the show. I really appreciate the chance to talk. Well, thanks so much for having me, Steve. That's it for this episode of the Sensitive Rebel Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. You'll find show notes, other episodes, and a whole lot more at sensitiverebel.com. We'll be back next week with another conversation. Until then, keep moving forward.